To the Carrero Podcast. I am Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today, our guest is Dr. Mike Lesperance. He is a professor and dean of James Madison University College in Harrisonburg, Virginia. He has presented and published extensively at the state, national, and international levels on issues of school reform. Lesperance has worked with the public school system in coaching hundreds of administrators related to strategic planning and instructional leadership in low-wealth schools. The college he directs currently has more than 100 full-time faculty and staff, 187 part-time faculty, 1,300 in a teacher licensure program, and over 30 initial licensure programs. Okay, Dr. Lesperance, thank you so much for coming in today. And can you share with our audience how you became involved in education? Sure. And just uh, number one, just thank you uh, so much for inviting me. And uh, I'm looking forward just talking over the course of the next hour. And uh, just to give you a little bit of context uh, for where I am, where I've come from to where I am now, uh, I, I grew up in about 10 miles from downtown Boston, a urban <laughs> setting uh, called Lynn, Mass. And so when I, I grew up, I, I had at one time as many as 10 people living in my house, four generations. Wow. We, were, we were low wealth. And, uh, but one thing I always remember, we didn't, we didn't have snacks, we didn't have a lot of stuff, uh, but my mother always had a book in her hand. So wow. it was just so I started reading at an early, early age, and for part of me, it was to just to escape, sort of you know reality in the sense. Sure, and you sure. know, my siblings still kidding me that I was the one that never talked growing up, but a lot of times I was just immersed in you know not a Walter Mitty f- fantasy world, <laughs> but, but just a, you know hmm. I, I could travel anywhere in the world yeah. through book. And uh, when I was seventeen years old, I had my parents. Uh, signed the paper so I could go into the military, and I went into the uh, Massachusetts uh, Army National Guard and then transferred over to the United States Coast Guard, active service. So I was in the military for seven years, and when I left uh, the military, I did what every other uh, person in my uh, family did. They wanted to be a police officer, Mm -hmm. so I became a police officer. Wow. Yeah, so I was was the first, and I should have known something was the first job I took, I gave them my resume and, and they said, uh, uh, can we make a copy of this? I go, that's the whole point. You can keep it, you know, <laughs> I, I, I knew something right then. Mm-hmm. So uh, I spent about 13 months as a police officer and uh, it just wasn't me. I, I have two brothers that retired with 30 years of uh, service as uh, police officers or state police. And uh, so after 13 months, I left and I went home and I told my wife, it's over. And she said, well, you always wanted to be a teacher. So I said, yeah, but there's no way I can do it. I'm, you know, I just can't do it. She goes, yeah, yeah. So uh, we were living in Greensboro, North Carolina at the time. And she brought me down and she brought me down to UNC Greensboro. It was first generation college. I didn't even know how to get there. And and I still tell the story. There's two doors that that my pathway in life has been changed. They said, you got to go. If you want to be a high school history teacher, go in this door. If you want to be a middle school uh, social studies teacher go in this door. I went to the wrong door and I became a, I became a middle school teacher. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> best, best, 
best mistake I've made in my life. <laughs> I, I still am a middle school kid at heart. Yep. And uh, all my work to this point has been with middle school. But but it's something that I just I just always want to make a difference with kids. And adolescence is just a great age to be able to do that. Yeah, it's so very impactful. Yeah, yeah so it's, a, it's a non-traditional pathway, mm-hmm. but it's uh, sort of the way that I became involved in education. Yeah, well, thank you for your service to our military and for the right. police department, and also as an educator, that's pretty incredible. So then, so then, Mark, what what made you decide if your if your heart and soul it was in was in middle school? What made you go go on in order to get your terminal degree? Right. That's great, uh, great question. You know, one of the things I always go back to when I was an adolescent, right, and I was in junior high school. And just the, really the struggles that I had, you know, uh, Kohlberg always talks about the, the different various stages of psychosocial development. But, but I truly believe that in adolescence that you, you know, uh, identity versus isolation, industry versus inferiority and intimacy, you know, uh, you, all the stuff, you, you, it happens at the same time. It just not one thing happens after another. So when I started teaching middle school kids, uh, prior to while well, I was working on my degree, I worked in a um, in a uh, program. It's called the Willie M program in North Carolina, and it's for violent youth, and it's for uh, youth that were uh, that harmed either themselves or others. And instead of going to j- juvenile jail, they would be put in group homes. So I worked in group homes while I was going as an uh, as I was going for my undergraduate degree. Well, it was really weird because uh, uh, North Carolina A and T is in Greensboro. So look at every guy, all my good friends were on the North Carolina A and T football team, and it was me, right? <laughs> we we, we work with these kids, and, and I, it was really dangerous work because number one, as a police officer, I carried a weapon, so I had something to always defend me. But but here I had to talk down, oh, and yeah. when I began to talk down students, I always just remember it's just like there's always a root. To why they are the way that they are, oh. and the more that I talked to them, the more that I realized my own pathway probably would have been different if I didn't have some things happen growing up. You know, if I didn't have some people stepping in, I could have very much have been a William. You know, you know, and, and, and you sure. know, and I like to think that you know some of it is, is mental illness or beyond that. But as far as sort of uh, you know, just some of the things that they are experiencing, I just and there's one. Uh, one particular thing that always drove me that, I, that when I saw it, I said that, you know, uh, you know, uh, we had this one young man in constantly, constantly in trouble. Couldn't, we used to have to go to the high school, pick him up all the time. <clears throat> and uh, he finally made the wrestling team, oh. wrestling team at the local high school. And, you know, and we were just so happy because this is Rodney's first thing that he's ever sort of accomplished. And so, you know, he was a backup wrestler, and then finally he got his chance to wrestle. And we got a call from the school, you got to come down. So he said, okay, what happened, right? And what Rodney ended up doing, to the spoils go the victor, right? After he won his uh, match, he went into the opposing team's locker room and took everything that they had. <laughs> and and he brought it back to the group home, and... and and it was so weird because we knew where he stored his stuff and yeah. we brought everything back and, and it broke our heart because even in a sense of something normal, Rodney did not know what to do. He did not yeah. know how to handle it. And so it, it, it told me as a, as a teacher, like every, every child has their own story. 
I have my own story, you have your own story, and that story impacts the way a person changes over time right. and day-to-day impact. So that's, you know, that's, so that's one thing with, with middle school, writing about it. You know, mi- middle school, to me, has always been the toughest area to teach because, you know, I mean, who, who do you know that wants to go back into middle school? Hmm. Not one, you know? So it's, it's just a real tough time for kids. But, like, you know, the old middle school movement say it's the last best chance. Kids are dropping out yeah. of school in the sixth and seventh grade. And if we don't do something. Right. It is a really, it's a pivotal point for, for kids. Either they're going to love school or hate school. And you can have such an impact as an educator at that age. Um, right. I was a middle school teacher too. And they always say right. middle school teachers are always middle schoolers. So <laughs> when you said a middle it's schooler right. at heart, I'm like, yeah, that's still me. <laughs> but yeah, It's wild. Yep. So your work in those programs, did that lead you into your passion and, and experience for school reform? And can you talk a little bit about that experience that you have in that research and what that means for K-12 schools? You know, you know, one of those things, just going back, it's always like the context. I always go to the context for everything. So when I started doing work with schools, I either, over the years, I've either worked with individual schools or I've worked with school systems, right, to really talk about how to create frameworks for strategic planning, but really to begin with, something that I've always done a little bit different. It wasn't a like plug program. Like sometimes you can have publishers or you can have companies say, if you do this way, this is the way it's going to happen. And even some of the big time folks that do it, you know, I said I have to do it a little bit differently because where I was in Eastern North Carolina, and just to give you like a little context in Eastern North Carolina, because people always think of North Carolina, you think of the beaches. And then you hear about Chapel Hill is sort of Raleigh, right? But right. there's but there's about a hundred miles between the beaches and Chapel Hill, and that's Eastern North Carolina. And if it was a state, it would be the fifty first state in a lot of different areas, very very rural, very very poor, and mm. it really has a historical context to it. So when it comes to school reform, I always say it's a tale of two cities. Um, just to give you an example. Uh, Back, you know, Brown v. Board 54, and then, you, you know, you, you have in eastern North Carolina behind the, behind the timeline a little bit. Then you had that Charlotte uh, busing case in 70, right? Yep. What took place was in a lot of places in eastern North Carolina, they started uh, building schools, right? Uh, they would build the black high school, and they would build the white high school, and they would look exactly the same. So you'd think you're back in Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, separate but equal mm-hmm. and once that Charlotte case came in 70 the force bus the, the force the integration the first thing that took place in a lot of these communities and, and it really has still playing out right now is the black high school became the junior high school so just think of the, the mm-hmm. junior high school and the white high school became the the high school mm-hmm. okay so that's number one number two during the 70s in north carolina you start looking at what took place was private schools, private Christian schools became very uh, predominant in, in, in that area. So all of a sudden churches said, well, they're, they're forcing us to come together. So we're going to build all these schools. So if you did like a little research of a lot of the day schools in North Carolina, they all started during the seventies. Hmm. Uh, and then the final piece 
which is sort of almost a little bit, you know, contemporary, is the whole idea of charter schools. Because charter schools then, that's when parents who still were very active in schools in a lot of these areas, took, but they couldn't afford private schools, the charter schools started coming in and started taking kids whose parents were very active. So I always talk about, in a lot of places that I work, the remnant. Mm-hmm. The remnant of public schools is there. So using that as sort of like a context, how do you do really do an honest evaluation, initial analysis? And I always use uh, William Perkey's work, the uh, uh, five P's of invitational education. I analyze through people, programs, policies, processes, and places. And I use that as sort of a way to begin to say, okay, for the stakeholders, what do you, what is it, you know, we can say that we have this or this, but really what do we have? in this school or in the school district and knowing what we have, how can we begin to move forward and not a dream away, right? right. And just say that this is just gonna happen because we put it on paper, but in a really a logical pattern to say, let's, how do we get from A to B then B to C? And how do we do it within the context of understanding that every person has a story? Because in, in a lot of the school districts I work in, the, the teacher who has an undergraduate degree may be the highest educated person within that county wow. you know they're at the top of the we're, so when i did an analysis for chapel hill cabo city middle schools a teacher might be at the low run as far as on, on that sort of educational backing yeah. on wow you know so so we, we always had to take a look at the context of diversity and equity mm-hmm. in understanding the story of every single person because if you know someone's story you can get them moving and if, and if teachers you know and, and, and it's really wild. That takes a lot of time, but building relationships. But, you know, uh, I've written about it. We've researched it. And, and you know, and the places that we do uh, that, that we did it is still doing incredible. Things come and go. But uh, And a lot of it's also based on Michael Fullen's work from the late 90s and early 2000s. Because that's just like timeless pieces of how to change culture. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Mark, with regards to to this have you have you experienced any any type of pushback yeah that's great <clears throat> yeah always push back right because you know it's, it sort of goes into <clears throat> this thing i don't know if you're familiar with the book tribal leadership and okay. they talk about the different stages within the culture right so uh so there, there are people within the culture and, and so this is a business book but it's it's, it's a pretty good one i've always like used to like sort of get an idea for people within the culture uh, stage one, life sucks. You have people in the culture like that. Stage two, my life sucks. It's sort of seasonal. Yeah. Stage, stage three, and this is the group that we've always had pushback from. I'm good, you're not. So there's always a comfort level when someone said, I'm good, you're not. When someone's life sucks, you don't really have an issue. If you can get make their life not suck, then they can move, right, and change. Right. And stage four is we're good they're not right so i always go back to those great boston celtic teams in the 80s and say all right, all right, all right. All right, i put that in for you there friend <laughs> right so but, but my point but to answer your question so when people are stuck in that stage three i'm good you are not why so why do you want to keep that goodness why do you want if, if you believe that why do you want to keep that and not share and change the culture that you're in so right. that's the that's the part that you you try to find out that person's story in how can they still can continue their individual meaning of change in their passions yet for the collective do things to help others and so the, those are the sticking points are not really external you can talk about external but 
you know, you've all been in schools in the same parking lot where you have an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school in the same parking lot, and there can be three very distinct cultures. And so by, you know, by figuring out the people within the culture and how to move individuals, that has always been the biggest sticking point with this. Okay. Um, and so when you're, so when you're working with, with administrators, um, throughout your years within, within higher, higher education, how, how have you, have you addressed this? Have you addressed your research and then have, um, have some of your candidates taken this and changed, changed things within their own schools? Right. Very, very good. Uh, great question. In fact, I got a, I got an email from somebody, uh, from Brunswick County, North Carolina, that I worked about eight years ago with instructional coaching for uh, assistant principals and principals. And now he's in Raleigh. He sent me a nice little note on Friday saying he's still using some of my stuff, which oh. I thought was pretty cool because at the time during the professional development, I didn't even think he was listening. So, that was <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so one of the things, so when we think of like leadership, right, at schools, you always think of like the micro political leadership, the managerial leadership, professional, you know, all, all these different types of strategic leadership, all this, right? And ma the management thing, I, I, I always focused on the skinny thing, right? Yeah, very tight thing, instructional leadership. If I knew the, my success when I was a middle school teacher was working with kids and understanding their stories, I believe one of the reasons why I went on to get my master's and my PhD was to have more influence. So when I talk to people who want to be principals and also assistant principals, sometimes they may not have been the master level teacher. They have all these other characteristics of a good leader, but they don't understand the nuances of instruction. So I was always hired by, and a lot of times I came in as a hired consultant for a lot of districts, and that's outside of North Carolina also. I've done a lot of work outside, you know, across the uh, nation in this. And, but working with people, and just talking about instructional leadership, and it's really simple, because what it goes down to is this whole idea of principals, if they understand their teachers and what their teachers' stories are, and then specifically what the teachers need to do to get marked from A to B, then things will be better. So I coached them how to understand the contextual considerations of instruction. So do teachers know their community? Do they know their kids? Do they know the trauma that the kids have been through? Do they know their stories? And how do you know that the teachers know the stories? Right? Because teachers coming from all these different pathways. There's not one pathway. This is the way it is to be a teacher. So in a, so in a certain culture, how do you know that all your teachers know the contextual considerations before they even begin to plan? Because if they plan, if they pull something off the internet, is it made for their school, their kids, or is it made for a new one, right? So, so the next part is do teachers understand planning? You know, I go back, it goes back to what Bill Clinton say, it's the economy stupid. In teaching, I truly believe it's planning, right? So if you, if you can't understand, if you don't understand planning in your kids, how can you be effective? Teacher says, I have classroom management issues. Do you really have classroom management issues or is your plan set up and such that right. your kids aren't engaged? You know, so that there's no depth of understanding taking place. So planning is a real big piece that I teach the, the lead is what to look for. And, what, and we do this through videotaping and some other measures. And then the second piece is taking a look at instruction. Do they see the nuances of instruction? Because, you know, just to give you, a, I did this one time. And it's, veteran te it's a veteran teacher, and she was really struggling in her classroom. So we looked at this veteran teacher on tape. Good plans and everything. 
but she just something was missing in the classroom. So what what took place was that she was always staring to the right side of the room, and she never like went across. She never scanned the room, and for the thirteen or fourteen years that she was teaching, nobody ever brought that up to her. Hmm. Wow! In the first three minutes of the tape, and she goes. I can't believe I do that. Hmm. She goes, I'm always calling on these same kids. Yeah. No, because you know, because you're in the middle of it, right? Yeah. So what we did, so, so this is something as stupid as stupid gets, but we put like a, like two visuals, one on either side of the room, and we, we forced her to start on one visual and scan across. And because, you know, because it wasn't innate to her. So we had to like, give her like a support, right? And we taped it like a, two or three weeks later. She was fine. It was like all of a sudden that she, you know, she was wearing glasses, right? All of a sudden she could see clear. But it's just like something like that is so simple, but sometimes maybe, you know, the instructional leader doesn't even know that you're looking for those little nuances. Yeah. It, but it could be the types of questions being asked. Right. You know, so it's a lot of different stuff when it comes to that. So switching gears a little bit with uh, the COVID situation, uh, what are your educational concerns for K-12 and higher education with that as a context? Right. Yeah. So two, two different things. Uh, number one, I personally believe that two years of instruction is being impacted on low wealth students. Mm-hmm. And personally, my heart is breaking. Yeah. Uh, professionally, we're trying to do everything that we can to support uh, schools in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And uh, we've created a teacher induction program. It's called the Virginia Teacher Induction Program that we're partnering with Virginia State University. It's an HBCU. The dean there and I are pretty close now. And we have, uh, uh, was it 1,100 new teachers, first-year teachers, and in 43 school divisions that we're coaching to try to help them no, they were supposed to be face-to-face coaching, but nobody's face-to-face. Right. So we're helping them h- how to do the tech. Because remember, there's two things, right? The technical part of teaching online mm-hmm. and then the actual teaching online. Yeah. And what we found out is that people can't do one or the other, or some can't do either. Because <laughs> it's true. On their pathway. And so what we're trying to do is provide as much support. But in reality, and just to be honest, I'm really, really concerned that low wealth schools, when, when this is the whole thing of equity, right? Yeah. That um, with certain resources that they're not getting at home, right? It's not their fault. I grew up in a house that, that you know, yeah, we read, but but my parents, you know, low, low wealth parents don't bother schools. They, they think schools should change their kids and help their kids. Right? Yeah. So, you know, so a, a lot of, the, you know, parents have, they need the resources to help their children at home. Mm-hmm. So it's really, we're really, really concerned. And, you know, two years now will affect things five to seven to ten years down the road. And uh, we have a great superintendent of public instruction, James Lane. And, and, and the real neat part about the things that he's doing, he really understands that this is a, you know, a time that everyone's like all hands on deck. And, and so the, you've seen the universities really working with the public school system to try to make a difference. Yeah, I I heard um, some of the universities, at least back in California, are offering um, free tutoring online for like their teacher candidates are offering it for, you know, the K-12 schools. Are, is your, are your students or your faculty doing anything like that? 
Yeah, our faculty do a lot of different things. So I'll just give you one one quick thing that our faculty are doing. Uh, we're in Harrisonburg, Virginia, right? Harrisonburg, Virginia is located in the Shenandoah Valley. So if you go five miles outside of uh, Harrisonburg, it, it is rural and, you know, in low low wealth, some areas. But you, in Harrisonburg itself, Harrisonburg High School has 73 different languages Whoa. spoken at the school. Wow. This is their, this is, Harrisonburg has always been a refugee settlement. Mm. Uh, and so we have people coming from all over the globe coming to Harrisonburg. And it's, and so a lot of the families, uh, English is their second language. And I'm talking about that we have large Russian community, Eastern uh, Europe, uh, Central America. I mean, it's just Africa, right? So uh, Syria recently, you know. So we have faculty who have they've created pods inside working with the school system. And they're actually uh, tutoring parents, acting as translators, doing a lot of different things like that. Because the key is a, lo- a lot of the students can speak multiple languages, but their parents strictly are like me, one language, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, so they're limited. And so a lot of our faculty, we have a really an international faculty at uh, James Madison. And, and so, the, you know, engagement's the local thing, and they're really doing a great job with that. Wow, that's great. Yeah. So then how do you, how do you see the um, rest of the academic year panning out? Well, at least, well, first, first for for higher ed, and then and then for K twelve. Yeah. So again, great question. Uh, I think we're going to know in January. Yeah. New president, new president comes in. If he decides to do something to shut down uh, the country for a couple of weeks, and saying that you know we need to do it at a certain level, and universities are shut down, it's going to really impact higher ed uh, economically. Uh, we have just, just, just this first wave. Uh, we have some great people in finance here at James Madison, and our senior leadership's incredible. And so we've been able to get through the, the first wave. Right. I don't know. We're not, we're not a UVA with, with a huge endowment. I don't know if we can do this time and time again. So January's going to play a big role in this, into our direction in a lot of, you know, in, the way that Virginia does it, it's decentralized with the school. They call them school divisions, not school districts. Uh, so a lot of it's, you know, it's local government decides what takes place. And depending on where you are for the hotspots, my daughter teaches uh, second grade. This is her uh, eighth year teaching. Uh, and Marie, you know, oh, nice. you, know, you, knew, you knew her when she was in preschool. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, <laughs> at, at, at Hoosier Courts. Yeah. Uh, but so, but like in her school, they're back face to face. They went back face-to-face this past week. Wow. And, and the superintendent of the school state, Oscar, Oscar Sheckel, right? He, he's incredible, has a real good view. Michael Richards, the superintendent of Harrisonburg, just because the dynamics are so different, they haven't been face-to-face yet. Unless the dis- child has dis- uh, disability services and some at-risk children. But for the most part, Harrisonburg has stayed home. And so it really depends on sort of like the demographics and geographic region yeah. uh, going forward. But again, it, we, since March, right? Yeah. Things haven't been happening. And now we're heading into year two. You know, we've finished up year one COVID. And how far are we behind? Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, and, and I think that's, that's, a, 
that's exactly what's what's going on here in in California. There's there's a lot of push from some parents to to put everyone back back into schools, and then a lot of push from other parents saying, "No, let's just you know we really haven't shut down yet. Um, you know, let's let's first get this get this taken care of." So then, what what advice would you would you give to K twelve teachers, students, and their and their families? Well. What we love about every child that sort of makes it through the day and week, and we know that they're at risk, we call it resiliency, right? Yeah. So the bit of advice is to look in the mirror and say, let's take the greatest characteristics of some of our most at-risk kids. Okay, it's a different way of approaching things. I like that. These kids, no different than you, Fred, myself growing up, there were things that got us through certain situations. And so what were those, what were those characteristics? Realizing that there is another day ahead of us, but, but more importantly, focus it, being intentional, right? And right. resiliency takes intentionality in realizing that you're not alone and getting the appropriate supports to help you shape that sort of resiliency. But being resilient, again, looking at the kids who are most at risk, because those most at risk kids, a lot of them are in middle school, all right? Because they drop out by the time they're in high school, a lot of kids. Yeah. So, but looking at some of those kids and say, what? allows this child because we know this child's got all sorts of things happening to make it through another day yeah i like that it's out of our hands yeah yeah so as a child i you liked to read but you um you know went into the military you were a police officer and then you became an educator did you ever dream <laughs> that you would get a terminal degree and then eventually be a dean of a, of a college or of a, a school? Let's put it this way. When I got my first job as an assistant professor, my father called me up and wanted to know if I was wearing, he didn't know the term, my regalia around campus. <laughs> His idea of college is through the Three Stooges. <laughs> and he thought that was something that all college professors did. Yeah. I had no idea. I mean, I told you, I grew right out, right, right outside of downtown Boston. The greatest universities in the world, some would say, argue. Not once did I ever, ever step on those grounds. Wow. I went to a couple of Boston College football games. When I, when I got into high school, my, my friend was going there. But that's about it, right? And it's just like, you know, it's, it's one of these things. I, I have a lot of colleagues graduated from Harvard to teach here and I always like joke with one or two of them saying that they wouldn't let me even get on Harvard grounds coming from the neighborhood I came mm -hmm. from never mind go to Harvard mm -hmm. so it's uh no not in a million years this has been this has been a really incredible journey and uh and it's just like you know I have no idea why I am I'm still trying to figure out right search for the meaning of life I'm still trying to figure out why have I been placed it's such a great university with great faculty, great resources. And the only thing that keeps on coming back to me is to change the life of one kid in the classroom. Yeah. And I, just have, I just have a better, you know, a, a better opportunity to do that now. And that one kid's always been me. You know, I always go back to who I was in junior high school. Right. I just remember that one teacher in the seventh grade, Mr. G, who sat me in the back of the classroom. He used to call me an animal because I was an at-risk kid. And I would like, you know, be a mouth, you know. So I just remember how demeaning that was. Mm -hmm. I said, man, I can never, ever, ever be Mr. G. But I remember Mr. Burke, and I'll say his full name, when I was in ninth grade civics, 
when he said, hey, Les Brown, you're not an idiot, man. You actually know some of this stuff. He goes, how do you know that? I go, oh, I read a book about it. So the, when teachers take the time to find out someone's story, yeah. it changes stuff. And so that my, my, my thing now, first thing I did as a dean, I tried to meet with every single full-time faculty and staff member one-on-one. And all I wanted to know was as much as they wanted to feel comfortable telling me their story. Yeah. That was the first thing I did as a dean. Yeah, that relation um, piece, that relationship piece is very key in, in any type of leadership role because it's, you know, where you, you build trust and you feel safe to take risks and to work hard for, for people. So, um, yeah, that's... And, and, and Fred, it goes back to that thing back in Carrie Bazelli's class. Yeah. Nick, Nick Burble is out of Illinois, right? Yeah. This whole thing, a dialogical theory, right? And if you have a mutual relationship built on uh, trust, respect, concern, affection, appreciation, and hope, something comes out of it. If you can build a relationship that's mutual, not sometimes they're not equal, they're mutual. And I've, always, I've, I've tried to do that in my personal life, but in my professional life, you're always trying to find something. So that critical theory, Carrie Bazzelli's uh, PhD class, yeah. oh, it still resonates to me now. I think sometimes my faculty gets sick of me talking about dialogue. <laughs> but well, you know it'll stick. <laughs> I know, but I think one of the most beautiful things about that is that when we when we find commonalities, and and that's I think I think that was that was one of the things that I that I gleaned from that from that class too is that everybody has something in common with someone else. Um, I think I think one of the one of the issues that that we're having is that we always want to separate ourselves, and you know, and it and it goes back to. Um, items of what you were you were talking about, um, because we do want to distance ourselves from other people and point fingers at one another. But then, without realizing that, when we find those commonalities, then we then we seek the humanity within yeah. within one another. And I think once we one once once we do that, then everything changes. And that also goes back to teachers. You know, if we, if, you know, if we as teachers find the humanity within every single child, then we teach them differently. Yeah, um, I'm with you 100. So, so one of the things that we that we do, Mark, is uh, with with every single um, guest that we have is we is we ask them what their call to action is. So, what's the one takeaway you would wish for people to learn from you? Again, it goes back to that relationship thing that. We do not live in an equal society, right? We do not live in a society that is utopia. We just don't. And, you know, the, the thing that I'm always stressing, if we can just learn a little bit about somebody, we can we can find something in somebody to move them, to help move them, to help give them the resources, but to help, most importantly, this whole idea of creating conducive class rooms. One of the things that we're doing here at James Madison is uh, this whole idea of not social justice. That's a big umbrella, right? Right. Educational justice. What can we do within our field to make a difference? So it could be as boring as I got a group working working on teacher education policies, yeah. right? We're looking at this historically. We're looking at it contemporary and then in the future. Are any of those policies systemically racist? Mm. systemically 
right? And that's the most yeah. boring committee. I get 21 people working on that. It's not going to be front page news. I like it. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. that's what they get to go through. Yeah. And, you know, and then, you know, and, and, and we're doing a lot of stuff with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we're trying to change the complexion of the way, uh, and we have a great faculty, but the way our faculty look, so we can attract students of color, right? And we can attract faculty of color. And we're doing some things really, that term outside the box is so overused, but we're <laughs> doing things different because we gotta do things different. Yeah. And it's this intentionality, and this is pre-Floyd. So this, this isn't like this just happened right. this weekend. I've been here for 18 months. This is sort of what, what I came to. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why I think I was selected as Dean here is to get out of our complacent approach in higher education and do things different. Right now, I believe that there are geographic regions and there are also demographics that are not coming to JMU for several different reasons. And that could be anything from admissions policies to curriculum. It could be a thousand things, but we're looking at all those things to change. So I'm just asking people just to look in the mirror and say, do I need to change? And in educational justice, if you're in the field of education, I believe that you have a moral imperative. Like Kerry Bazzelli, I love him. He has, a, <laughs> yeah. he, he has a, had a lot, a lot of, you know, uh, stuff on me. I just, like, I carry a lot of his stuff. But we have a moral context to what we do. Yeah. And as educators, we can never forget that. Because there's a Fred Ramirez in some school in the Tidewater region. There's a Mark Lesperance in some school the Tidewater region. And if we don't have a teacher, if it's a Mr. G that says Fred sit in the back of the room, you have 12 years of Mr. G's. Yeah. You know, you're not going to be doing what you're doing now. Yeah. So we got to find Mr. Burks, Mrs. Burks, you know what I'm saying? And so that's, that's sort of like my, it's not a call to arms because I don't know if that's politically correct, but it's my charge. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love that. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time today. And thanks so much for sharing your experience and the work that you're doing and the changes that you're trying to make and instill in our future teachers. So um, just wanted to really say thank you from the bottom of our heart. Appreciate you. Well, and I feel humbled that you would even ask me to speak. Okay. Thank you. Hello, it's Malia here again, and we have a brief fundraising announcement. As you may or may not know, edX Global is a completely nonprofit organization that is run by volunteers. 100% of our donations go to student-led projects around the world, and it would help us tremendously if you donated even as little as $5. If you are in the spirit of giving during this holiday season, please send us a donation through PayPal or Venmo to edxglobalinc at gmail.com, spelled E-D-A-C-T-S-G-L-O-B-A. L I N C at gmail.com. You can be provided with a tax exempt ID number after your donation by requesting through the same email address. Thank you in advance for your donation and happy holidays. We are also holding a popcorn fundraiser through Double Good. To order where your proceeds go to edX Global, use the website https colon backslash backslash popup.doublegood.com slash s slash o v i l o g and again thank you for your support mm -hmm.